Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining the first episode of the Joy of Financial Planning podcast. This has been something I've been putting off for a really long time, and I'm looking forward to having this first episode, getting some feedback from you, and continuing on like some of the people I admire who put together really great podcasts. So let's begin. I've always believed in a certain kind of American dream. When I was 19, I told my dad, you know, I don't think I'm going to continue college because I'm going to become an entrepreneur. He looked at me kindly, uh, firmly, and said, um, how about you go to college for me? And, and I said, okay, um, and it worked out pretty well. Still, I hung on to the dream of becoming a millionaire and using those millions to save the world, like people like Bill Gates and his Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, also people like Mark Zuckerberg and his organization. That was my American dream. But I quickly learned that you can't save the world until you master your own riddle of financial survival. And after a few years as an accountant, I started to appreciate the peace of a paycheck that arrived every two weeks and the value of vacations earned just by showing up to work for maybe 50 weeks in a row. Eventually, I began to appreciate the beauty of the other, more typical American dreams that I thought I could expect, like the ability to buy a house someday, or building a career, maybe earning a pension, and of course, completing college. Those of us who were born between about 1965 and 1980, well, we're a part of a pretty unique generation, Generation X, that has uh, seen so much change. It used to be that you only had to do about one thing right to succeed. In the D.C. area, if you bought a house in the 1980s, just one generation ago, you would have accumulated at least a half a million dollars in equity by now. If you got a college degree, it was kind of a big deal a generation ago, uh, and you were guaranteed a good job. And by the way, if you got that good job, you probably had a pension to go along with it. One generation ago, retirement was a three-legged stool. You had your savings, which weren't that important. You had Social Security, which you thought you could depend on. And then, of course, you had pensions. But Social Security is set to be insolvent by the year 2034, almost 100 years after it started. It started in 1935. And it was never meant to cover all of our retirement costs anyways, just about 40%. And without pensions, that leaves about 60% to our savings, which didn't used to be that important, but now they really are. On top of that, if you're Gen X or younger, you notice that the cost of housing and education, if you just look back, has gone up incredibly fast, much faster than inflation. And looking at the history on a website like inequality.org, a lot faster than the growth of our paychecks. There is growing inequality, that's pretty obvious, and there are lots of pretty charts that talk about the top 1% and how much they own and how much their income has grown versus just about everybody else. We're expected to do better than our parents and our grandparents, somehow, without a pension and maybe without Social Security, all due to a scheme from 1978 called a 401k. Uh, by a consultant named Ted Banna. 
designed and devised to divert taxes at a time when the top tax rate was really, really high. But four decades later, um, we have a longer lifespan, life is more expensive, and we're just really trying to figure this all out. And even those of us who live and work in D.C. area who might be making six figures, it's still pretty tough to make ends meet. I know other parts of the country don't want to hear that. Um, but when you have homes that are about $700,000 or more, it becomes pretty tough. We're part of a retirement experiment that no one knows how it will turn out. And this was not the American dream. Historically, what has made the United States of America great is not just the checks and balances on our bicameral government, but the checks and balances on business itself. There's always been a difference between being pro-business and being pro-businesses. You know, being pro-business ensures that the established stay in power and that the latter uh, doesn't have an opportunity to compete. And, and I have a small business and many people I know have a small business and we all want to grow. We all want to succeed. And um, we would prefer that, you know, I guess the government was pro-businesses um, as opposed to what we've seen recently. The challenge we face today, in fact, ever since we were born, is somewhere along the line between the 60s and the 70s, shareholder value or stockholder value has become more important than what we can call stakeholder value. The people who hold stock are treated as more important than the people who work for the company, more important than the people who buy from the company, more important than the community that supports the company more important than the environment that surrounds the company. We have always had inequality in the United States. That's part of what makes us cool. Uh, that's part of what makes business fun. Um, we don't expect equal outcomes, but we do always expect equal opportunities for success. That's capitalism. And now inequality has grown to such an extent that our generation, even with our cool internet toys, we still have a great possibility of doing worse financially than our parents. So what does this all mean? In my view, it means that we have to be a lot better than perhaps our parents were at managing money and all the principles that go into managing money. We have to be better at making it, at protecting it, and growing it, especially our income. And that's unfortunately the bad news because a lot of us don't really care about money stuff, um, but that's what we have to do. The good news is the generation that we have, we've seen so much, as I mentioned before, we've had every experience necessary to master this thing called the riddle of our financial survival and success. We have the technology and we now have this newly integrated money science that I call the joy of financial planning. We still have a path to the American dream. Now, as a financial planner, when I work with clients, I work through seven particular strategies that I didn't create or invent, but as I've seen the curriculum with the Certified Financial Planning Program, as I've seen the best practices with other financial planners, uh, these are the seven levers that I like to pull to make their lives as possible as, um, as can be, and I'll share them with you. Number one, it's risk management. The wealthiest people know that the number one thing to protect well, is their wealth, right? They're wealthy. They're not worried about retirement. So risk management is a big deal for them. Everything from life insurance, sure, but down to their property insurances, to their liability, 
meaning if they get sued for either a car accident, uh, someone slips and falls at their house, at their business, or someone just sues them because they're wealthy. Risk management is what the wealthy people look at first, and most of us who may or may not consider ourselves wealthy really can look at this area of risk management. You know, Yes, all those insurance agents, uh, go ahead and shake their hand and talk with them and see what they're offering and see what makes sense for you. For pennies on the dollar, you can protect everything up to your life, maybe not just for yourself, but for your family. So risk management is the number one thing that I speak to with clients, even though I don't sell insurance policies of any kind. I refer it out. The second category that I look at is estate planning. And I look at estate planning not so much for the client that I'm sitting across the table from, but for the people that I'm not seeing, um, for the kids that are coming afterwards, or maybe for the spouse that may be left sort of holding the bag. Um, When you do estate planning, you're protecting your family or the ones that depend on you from your absence, and you're making it easy to go through things like probate, which is an ugly court process that is at the worst time in your life. There's opportunities to basically avoid probate entirely or maybe not all the way entirely, but most of it. And I'll work with an attorney and with the family that I'm sitting with to ensure that that's taken care of. The third category I look at is cash and debt. And and by the way, when I say I look at this, most of you who are listening to this know I've got a colleague in Doug T's and we sort of double up on all of our clients and make sure they've got all the uh, needs taken care of. So with with his smarts and my smarts and our shared experiences, we do the best we can for our clients. So the third category we look at is cash and debt and that relationship, whether it's building up an emergency savings um, and basically whittling down debt where you're paying interest instead of earning interest. We really look at those two categories because the last thing that any of us needs to be is upside down. Most of us are, especially if we own a home or have student loan debt, we're typically upside down, i.e. we're paying more interest than we're earning. But that's a a ship that we should try to write intentionally. And most of our clients get that as soon as we present the numbers in front of them. So these are all fairly simple things. You know, we started with risk management, we went on to estate planning, and now we're talking about budgeting, right? Um, We're talking about cash and debt flow. And so we're trying to say, what are the easiest things that we can look at? The fourth category is going to be income and expenses, and that's, that's more of a more flow than really looking at cash and debt. How much you're making, how much you plan to make, how much you spend, being really intentional about it. You know, everyone spends money on dumb stuff, but that's only dumb to the beholder. Um, it's not dumb to the spender. So the question really is, are you spending intentionally on stuff that you think is pretty cool? Do you save money for vacations? Do you save money for shoes? Do you save money for gold chains? Whatever it is for you, it could be cable, it could be a fancy car, do that intentionally. Whatever you don't want to spend money on, um, let's try to see it, and then let's try to reduce or maybe even eliminate it. You know, For example, bank fees. I haven't met anyone that likes paying money on bank fees, but um, some people do. So we highlight that and make sure that folks know, hey, if this is not something you want to spend on, let's find a way to get rid of that. Finally, the next category that um, that I'll typically speak with with clients are the investments. And this can be investments in yourself. This could be investments 
and your children. It certainly can be investments in a house. And oh, by the way, it could be investments in the stock market, the bond market, options market, all kinds of markets. Uh, I am investment agnostic. I think uh, this today and the future require that we make investments, uh, whether you're looking at time value of money stuff and reinvesting in the markets or whether you're looking at developing your career and your profession. It's really important that we look at all the categories of investments and become really intentional about that as well. Uh, if we don't, then we kind of lose a little bit. So investments are a category that if we look at, I think we'll be able to survive this economic bipolarity that we're facing. All right, if I got my numbers right, the sixth category that you know we look at, that I look at, is retirement. And retirement isn't just about the investments. I think for a long time, we've been sort of fooled by the financial industry. And when I say a long time, I more mean sort of this generation. You know, it's only been since 1978 that we've had this thing called a 401k, where there are opportunities to invest and, you know, pensions that started to go away in the early 80s. And all of a sudden, many of us assumed that we would be good at managing money when a lot of us don't even like to talk about money or look at the money. And so we've we've been through this retirement experiment and been told that basically retirement is about creating this large sum of money. And really, retirement can be about generating income. We see this with athletes. We see this with musicians, with actors. They have this wonderful annuity, which annuities are pensions, uh, in the form of royalties that keeps them going. You know, there are a lot of people, whether it's uh, book authors or as I mentioned, athletes that don't have to worry about this thing called retirement once they um, continue getting that income going. But I don't mean it's just a salary that they're making, like, for example, an athlete that's making a salary while they're playing basketball. You think of someone like Michael Jordan with the jump brand for Nike. This is a guy that's still got to be making in the eight figures for Nike because people are still wearing Jordan brand shoes and he hasn't played in over 20 years. I guess he did have that one year with the Wizards, but um, we won't count that. Anyway, I think whatever you're doing as a profession is important. And over the next 10, 20, 30 years, however long you have to work, um, that's an opportunity for you to become an expert and to leverage that expertise over time in writing, in speaking. So maybe investing yourself for speaking and writing skills so that by the time you're in the age that you'd like to step back, and that age could be 50, it could be 60, it could be 70, but whenever that is, you don't necessarily have to report to a desk or to a boss to make this thing called retirement, I'll just call it you know, second life, happen. You could leverage your smarts and your knowledge, and more importantly, your wisdom uh, over time to be able to make more per dollar on an income. And if you can do that while maintaining your health, which is the second big category that I'll lean in here for retirement, um, you'll never, ever run out of money. But healthcare expenses are now the second largest expense when it comes to retirement. So eating the way you know you should, giving yourself a little opportunity for exercise day after day, boring moment after boring moment, it actually gets more interesting when you start to see results. That's the kind of thing that can make your 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, maybe even 90s a lot more pleasurable than just the idea of, oh, I'm going to save enough money and hopefully golf for 30 years. Number one, that's going to be real tough to do. Saving 3% a year, even with employee match, 
or employer match and then living for 30 years off of that, um, I think the best thing that you can do for yourself is ensure an income stream, which means leveraging your expertise and also protecting your health as far and wide as you can, if, um, if that phraseology makes any sense. The seventh category, of course, is taxes and keeping an eye on taxes. This year, 2018, we just had implemented a brand new tax law. It hasn't happened in this way. We haven't had great new change in the tax law for over 30 years. So those of you listening to this podcast in October of 2018, good. Go see your CPA. If you don't have one, go get a CPA and just ensure that you're doing everything you need to do that you could do before the year ends and or just prepare if you're about to have a big tax liability because of some of the changes, prepare for that moment by setting some money aside. Maybe you're about to have a tax refund because some of the changes. Prepare for that moment by making some plans. I always say financial planning is life planning, and in this case, when it comes to taxes, it most certainly is. Those who plan taxes, so it's called tax planning, um, usually have a, a much better um, relationship with their CPA, certainly, but a much better moment when it comes time for tax prep in March or April of the following year. So those are the seven strategies that you know I look at with my clients. Those are the seven strategies that are going to be the heart of the book that's coming out soon. And uh, I hope they make sense to you. Uh, if they don't, well, there'll be a book. So, uh, so don't worry about it. You know, the, the joy of financial planning that, that I share with my colleague Doug is not necessarily a pleasure for a lot of people, but the results are. Um, some people think it's a full-time job. It just so happens to be our full-time jobs. And so we enjoy the work. We are always uh, interested in working with more people, but we hope this podcast can be of value to folks who like to do it themselves or, or just aren't in the place where working with a financial planner makes sense. You know, I've seen just over the years, whether it's been um, comparing our firm to other firms or whether it was, you know, running for office, apathy is the biggest threat that we have in this economy, you know, not paying attention. I'm, I'm always happily, you know, I guess not surprised that when we show our very smart clients what the numbers look like, they typically are very encouraged to do the right thing. There isn't usually a struggle between, you know, what we advise and what they want to do. Um, and that's probably just a result of working with really smart people. But really, these are people that are not apathetic around what their finances are and what they're planning them to be. And it makes a big difference. Never has there been a time, I guess I shouldn't say never, not since the 1920s has, um, has our economy been as polarized as it's been. Um, and the apathy towards that is what hurts us the most. Just like the apathy towards politics has gotten us to a very, very strange place in our politics here in 2018. This is the same apathy I ran against when I ran for Congress in 2012 and lost. It's the same apathy that Donald Trump ran against in 2016 and won. But the joy of financial planning is not about a political party or a political extreme or any of those esoteric philosophies or debates that you might have with friends or family. It's really about taking action around your economic life because you can. Um, what's exciting is that you can. You, you can transform the potential you have into wealth. 
you can become successful and be able to give like I wanted to uh, when I didn't want to finish college back in the day, um, but to be able to be a philanthropist and give before you die because you were successful at some point. The joy of financial planning is about taking care of your family and allowing your family members to set the example of how the American dream really works, not just for this generation, but for generations to come. I believe that you can be, and, and I can be, I mean, and I'm working towards this too, but that we can all be the people that we dreamed we could be back in the day when we used to daydream. I believe we can achieve great feats in solving the world's problems of education, poverty, and oppression, and hunger, and even fighting towards world peace, that we can be a link in the chain to make the world a better place. But our first step is mastering our own riddle of financial survival. That's what the joy of financial planning is about, um, leading us to this thing called the American dream, which is still attainable which is still possible. And these seven strategies that I've touched on here are really a big part of that. So um, I'm not quite certain what the next podcast episode will be about, but it'll be likely about one of these seven strategies. I look forward to your feedback, and I thank you for listening.